This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. This is another episode of 15-Minute History. I'm your host for today, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, part of Hemispheres at the University of Texas at Austin. And with me in the studio is Casey Hoyer. Casey is a doctoral student in the Department of History here at UT. She's also a former teacher, uh, and she works on post-World War II South Africa. Casey, welcome. Hi. What do you have for us today? Uh, Yeah, today we're going to be talking about the Scramble for Africa. Great. Uh, Well, what is the Scramble for Africa? (laughs) The Scramble for Africa is kind of the, um, the general term labeled to this time period in the 1880s when a bunch of European powers, about 14 different countries, got together in 1885 and literally took out a map and drew a bunch of lines and carved up the, the continent of Africa. Um, so it's it's really important, actually, to, to clarify that this was not the starting point of European colonialism of Africa. It's actually just a change in the way that the Europeans uh, approached it. So how did they approach it previously? Before the 1880s, um, partially due to their own philosophies or technology, the Europeans were largely just around the periphery of the continent. Um, So, for example, you have from West Africa the slave trade, you know, that had been going on for several hundred years where European, um, they had European different countries had, you know, their forts on the on the the coastlines, but they didn't really go into the continent itself. Um, You have the Dutch that set up the Cape Colony at the very southern point in 1652, but um, you don't really see a large concentration of Europeans on the inland until about the until the 1800s. And there's no real divvy up or no organized, um, you know, discussion of who gets what until the 1880s. And so what did colonialism look like after that? And what and what was different about it? Yeah, well, after that, there was a lot more. um, Well, the reason that they met actually at the in 1885 was largely to avert war, because they were afraid that all these European countries that were fighting over and it wasn't just Africa, they were fighting over other areas as well. But basically that they didn't want to have um, a major conflict in Europe. But there's also, and the reason for that was there's this growing um, uh, vying for con- like prestige amongst the Europeans themselves. So this was largely a European problem that was played out on the African continent. Well, I know uh, from my own work in North Africa that, that relations between that part of the continent and Europe are, are millennia old. Uh, and so the European experience had looked a little bit different there. But maybe you could talk a little bit about what 19th century European relations look like. Yeah. So North Africa is actually oftentimes not even being considered um, under like the quote African field of study. You know, they study sub-Saharan Africa and they, they make this division because it is the, the European intervention or our experience in Northern Africa has been there for so long. You know, the Mediterranean was, was able to be um, crossed much earlier than um, the rest of like the African coast, largely because of the the, the ocean currents that were and the, the type of ships that they had at the time. Um, 
things changed in the late 19th century largely because of technology. The Suez Canal opens in Egypt. The British、um, basically facilitated that project because they wanted to get to India. They had control of India. They wanted to get to India much more efficiently. And as a result of wanting to make money off of it, wanting to control it, not have the French or the Russians or whoever control the Suez Canal, they actually took control of Egypt itself largely for that reason. You also have other examples like Libya, though.、Um, there isn't a whole lot in Libya as far as European、um, perceptions of wealth. It's it's largely desert. There's no there's nothing they can mine that they didn't know about oil at the time, and there's no、um, no agrarian. They can't really farm it for anything. Right. So as a result, it was largely kind of one of the last countries to be colonized, and so Italy was、uh, the one who vied for control of Libya, largely because they were late showing up to this scramble for Africa. They needed to be a colony in order to prove they were a country or or something like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, you mentioned already the West African slave trade. So.、Um, Clearly, the Europeans had been around the periphery, but how did the incursion into the interior change、uh, that region?、Um, this region is is has been well developed and a lot of contact with Europeans for a very long time,、um, and the Europeans'、uh, influence, although the Europeans themselves stayed on the the coastlines. Uh, the people, because of the slave trade, fled to the interior, thinking they were safe. Well, now the Europeans, because of a two major technology changes,、um, were able to go into the interior. And one was because of quinine. This was a huge、um, malaria-rich region, <laughs> right? And so, because it's very tropical, this whole area is very tropical. And very temperate, and so it, mosquitoes everywhere. And they knew that quinine could keep the Europeans from basically dying off, <laughs> which is a good thing, right?、Um, the second major thing was in technology was a steamship. A lot of Africa rivers are not navigable, at least not. Without steam, and so once they get the steamship, they're able to actually go up rivers they were never able to go before.、Um, and so、um, this is actually where you get Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Interesting. Yeah.、Um, so, but because of those two major things, the West Africa is is made、um, penetrable, and they start going in, and it's hugely disrupted to the local economies. They're not involved in the slave trade anymore. It's not like they're going looking for people, but the Europeans use the the local indigenous people for their own economic gain. To work on plantations or things like that, so it's hugely disruptive that way and culturally as well. And so, this technology allowed them to push through West Africa and into Central Africa. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the Belgians were the primary ones in Central Africa, which is largely the Congo is the main area there. And the Belgians, specifically King Leopold,、um, he saw this area, the Congo, as his,、um, which is almost all rainforest. He saw, saw it as his own quote unquote、um, personal playground, and so he.、Um, He's very well known for his stark brutality.、Um, there's、uh, lots of stories of the, his、um, employees chopping off, you know, indigenous people's arms there,、um, and things like that. And one of the major, he basically was trying to extract as many riches as he could from it. He didn't. He was not regarding the, the local populations as, as in any sort of humanitarian way. And so,、um, one of the major、um, things he took from the area actually was rubber. Rubber actually comes from trees. It had a huge、uh, environmental impact because it's a it's a rainforest,、um, but it also、um, economically and and culturally in all these different ways disrupted the local populations as well. Wow.、Um, 
So moving on uh, further into the continent, uh, East Africa was a bit of a latecomer to European colonialism, but uh, they did show up in the 19th century, and it was part of the scramble as well. Yes, it was. Um, the, most of it was, actually. Um, in East Africa is where we find the, the main independent area in, in that managed to escape the scramble, and that was Ethiopia. Um, Ethiopia at the um, late 18th century, or sorry, late 19th century, actually had a very strong emperor, Emperor Menelik, and his their, um, I guess, warfare tactics were way more su- superior than the Italians, uh, which were the European group that was trying to colonize this region. And so they defeated the Italians pretty solidly, and all the rest of the European uh, nations kind of saw that example, didn't see, again, any economic gains for themselves and decided just to let them be. And, um, and Emperor Menelik managed to kind of keep this, this, um, this region relatively independent up until uh, the World Wars, where they became un, um, under the League and things like that. Um, the other areas, though, for example, Kenya um, was controlled by the British. The Germans were also in the area. Those are the two main players in East Africa. Um, and in Kenya, you can still t- see today that the, the the results of this is um, there's approximately 10% of the country is of uh, European descent, British descent. So they, it was very much a settler colony, um, similar to, to South Africa, which is probably the best known um, settler colony. Right. And speaking of settler colonies, as you mentioned, you know, there's obviously a large white population in South Africa. There was in Zimbabwe before the, the current administration uh started removing them. And so uh, clearly, there's a long history there of European influence. Right. And it's largely British, actually. So the the British, um, one of the political cartoons on the website, actually, is the Colossus of Rhodes. It's a very famous um, political cartoon because the guy is so famous. And Rhodes was one of the major, um, I guess, British guys who acquired land. Um, He uh, and so the, the the political cartoon is showing, you know, the Cape to Cairo. So they had Egypt, they had the Cape, and they wanted everything in between, you know, Kenya and other places in between, you know. And so um, that's where you get Zimbabwe and a lot of these places that had actual significant white populations ranging around 10, 15 percent or so. And these, the difference between a settler colony is that these people actually invest in um, reproducing their own culture in those colonies. So they build homes, they build farms, they build churches that are their churches. They're not missionary churches necessarily. Right. Um, so, the, and that's an important difference. You know, other colonies they'll go in and want to maybe convert or Europeanize, Westernize, whatever the local populations, but they don't, and their goal is to extract goods. Whereas the settler colonies, and they want to make money, obviously, but their goal is essentially to to live there. That's their home. That's where their grandkids are going to grow up and, and so on. So it changes the dynamics and the politics of it. Um, and that's how in South Africa specifically, the region in general has um, a lot of racial tensions between um, whites and blacks, actually, and, and other ethnicities in the, the region and the development of apartheid in South Africa, this, this distinct um, government of separation, essentially, that existed for a very long time. Right, because that population's been there for generations. Yes. And they don't, they're not European anymore. Exactly, yeah. They consider themselves South African, right? So I guess the question to sort of uh, start wrapping up is, 
Why is this important? Why does colonialism still matter in the 21st century? We're talking about events that ended 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, you can still see the ramifications of either the colonial countries or how the transition was treated. Um, Africa is very diverse, so it's hard to, you have to look at each case by case, each country by country basis. But f- to generalize, um, the process was very disruptive going from the European control to be to decolonizing and becoming independent. Some were quite violent, and you have the ramifications of that both politically and socially, culturally, economically. Some of the, um, the European countries maintained ties, um, especially economic ties, which you see a lot of in um, French West Africa, mm-hmm. um, where they still basically control a lot of the, in, the goings-on in the countries economically, not politically, um, but it, the economics causes a lot of disruption and a lot of problems. You know, if people – it determines the normal person's job, you know, if – if they're marketable to a French company, if they speak a language where they go to school, that sort of stuff. So there's still a lot of, of Western influence, and, and this all comes from the, um, the process of taking apart this whole system that was set up. And I imagine that a lot of this plays out in, in racial attitudes as well. Yes. Um, probably one of the most famous examples of that would have been the 1994 Rwanda genocide. Um, that the, genocide has direct links back to when the Germans controlled Rwanda as a colony. They divided up the local ethnic groups to control them, or the, the local ethnic group. It was one group, and, and they took all the wealthier people and made them one ethnic group, which... Um, and then left the rest, which is the majority, as a separate ethnic group. So you're actually taking social classes, but making them ethnicities. So it's not based on any sort of, you know, race. They're completely constructing these two different people who used to be one. And the ramifications of that, how it turns into a genocide, is that they they basically pit one against the other. They they leave the wealthy in charge of the poor, and they give them all the opportunities of education until after several generations they feel like different people. And, and the, the majority who are quite poor are against, you know, causing a lot of um, – and. Uh, against the ethnicity, and then the Germans just kind of leave. And then you have this this problem of, of how do we reconcile these two ethnicities that have now a long history of unfairness, and, um, it, and it ended up turning into a genocide. And that's a very, it's a relatively unique situation, but those that sort of manipulation by the Europeans, um, even once the Europeans are gone, the Africans who are still living there have to deal with how how do we manage these situations? Well, I'm sure we could have a much longer conversation about all of this, yeah. but uh, we are just about out of time. So, Casey Hoyer, thank you very much for being with us today. Um, as Casey mentioned, we have additional uh, readings and supplemental documents on our website. Uh, you can go to blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 15-minute history. Uh, and uh, download this episode as well as those additional documentations. Thank you for joining us. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to have us talk about on an upcoming episode of 15-Minute History, go to our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's one five-minute history. And click on the Contact Us link in the right sidebar. The opinions and views expressed in today's episode are not representative of the University of Texas at Austin or any of its constituent bodies and are solely those of the people who spoke them.